everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, your host and president of Morton Group LLC, a national consulting firm based in Chicago. Today, I am so excited to bring you an incredible conversation with stand-up comedian, writer, and all-around powerhouse, Gina Yashere. Alongside her extensive career in comedy and Netflix comedy specials, Gina is the co-creator of the hit show, Bob Hart's Apishola, now entering its fifth season on CBS. Gina, what? it's so good to see you. And of course, we're recording this yes. uh, after you spent time in Chicago. Oh, yes. You were in Chicago for a while. I was. Uh, yeah. Did my comedy show, The Woman King of Comedy. That's and you right. You came and brought 7,000 people with you. <laughs> so I'm very grateful to you. <laughs> you know what? It was, we were so excited that you were coming. I mean, because we love, of course, your show, and we're going to talk about all that. But what we'd like to do on, on Gathering Ground is to start by giving folks just, just a, the a, a summary, if you will, of how you got to where you are today. You're living in LA, you, you're going into the fifth season of, of your show, but let's talk about some of your, your the early start of your career. Okay. Uh, so I start, I mean, obviously I wasn't always a comedian. I was born and raised in London, England. Uh, my parents were both Nigerian immigrants. And um, yeah, so I had two brothers, two sisters, and basically Nigerian immigrant families, very into the academia, very much into getting a good job that is secure and will also have good cachet so that they can boast to their friends back home in Nigeria. So I was meant to be the doctor. My brother, one brother, my mom picked all our jobs out before we were even born. <laughs> so even when my mom was pregnant with me, somebody said to her, what do you have? And she's like, I don't know. It's good to be a doctor. That's all I do. <laughs> And that's how she was. So I was meant to be a doctor. My younger brother, Dele, was meant to be an engineer. My other brother was meant to be a lawyer. She picked out all our jobs. But I got to A-level biology and fainted at the sight of a bleeding when we had to dissect a dead rat. And I was like, oh, I can't do this. So I switched to engineering. And, and my brother, my mum turns to my brother and says, OK, now you will be the doctor. So it's like a conveyor belt. Um <laughs> so I studied engineering. Um, I studied electrical electronics engineering and I worked in the industry for a few years. So uh, one of my first jobs was working for a company called British Telecom, which is kind of like your AT&T. So I worked uh -huh. telephone exchanges before it all became computerized. This is how long ago that was. I used to work in a telephone exchange, wiring up the telephone lines and stuff. Then I left that job because I got bored after a year and ended up with Otis, which is the biggest elevator in the world and I was their first female engineer in their 100 year history in the UK not in America I don't know what what the scene was in America so I worked with them for four years um it was a struggle I was their first woman which sounds great they put me on all their brochures and flyers you know but then I went through hideous racism and misogyny at work like in your face coming into work uh pictures of monkeys stuck above my overalls uh, put my overalls on and I'm put my hand in my pocket and I'm pulling out a banana skin, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I went through that for four years. Eventually I left that job because I was their first woman. They didn't really know what to do with me. And they, mm -hmm. they were giving me the promotions I deserved, but not letting me have the responsibilities that went with those promotions. Cause they'd be like, well, we don't think God, the guys will take orders for women. So we'll give you the pay rise 
but we're just not going to let you run your own site like you're supposed to because we don't think the guys will listen to you. Uh, so I left that job eventually. And um, I took the summer off. I left the job in the summer because they were doing redundancies, as in laying people off because the building, ah, industry, okay. building industry went through a slump in the mid-90s and they were laying people off. But they were never going to lay me off because I was their poster girl. But I marched into my manager's office and I was like, lay me off. Give me my payoff. Let me go. Or else I'm going to go public with all this. Because, I, you know, so many things happened. At one point, I tried to uh, have a grievance hearing with them over the, the you know, sexual discrimination. And uh, my union refused to represent me. My union that I've been paying into for four years, my union rep turned around and went, oh, we don't know anything about this women's lib stuff, so we ain't coming. So I had to go to a grievance hearing uh, with all the top brass at my company, unrepresented, on my own. And obviously they judged in their own favour. So after that, I was like, all right, I've got to be out of this job. So I eventually left the job. And it's in that interim that I kind of fell into comedy. Uh, I started doing sort of stuff within the Black community, fundraisers, you know, things like that. And then one day they were doing a fundraiser and they were like, we need poets, singers, dancers, you know. And I wrote, me and my couple of my friends were always messing around doing our parents' accents and talking about our culture. And I wrote what I thought was a play for us to perform on this fundraiser. And it turned out this play was a comedy sketch because people just laughed their asses off all the way through it. And I was like, hmm. So Gina, let me ask you here though, when, when you started to do the events and, you know, things in the community, had you done something at home? Why did you think you could do this? Oh, I was just, at that time, I was just helping organize. Ah, so okay. I started off, you know, I was very angry when I first left my engineering job. So I joined the Nation of Islam. You have to read my book, the whole story. I have read the book. But then you know that I joined the Nation of Islam for 12 Yes, months. I do know that. And uh, so I was in the Nation of Islam for a while. And then I was like, eh, this is not for me. But I got into, I loved the black history that they never taught us at school, my African history. I loved the idea of doing things for my community. So from the Nation of Islam, I moved on to other groups that were doing stuff in the community. And I was just helping organize. I'd go to meetings. I'd help organize, you know, fundraisers. I'd help organize, you know, food giveaways, that kind of thing for poorer people in the community, that kind of stuff I was doing. And this particular fundraiser, they're like, we haven't got enough performers. And by that time, I've been working with this group for over a year. Me and my friends were you know, always messing around doing our parents, Nigerian and Jamaican accents and whatnot. So I wrote this play. I was like, I'm going to write a play. Because I always knew that I had a performance gene in me because I was always funny at school. Mm. People always told me that I was, I was always the class clown. I remember a drama teacher at a parent-teacher conference saying to my mother, your daughter, she's a performer. She should be, you know, maybe she should do acting. Or And my mum was like, well, she can act like a doctor till <laughs> she becomes a doctor. And that was the end of my acting dreams. So uh, I always knew that there was something in me that I was meant to be performing, but it was dri drilled out of me by, by my mum saying, that is nonsense, you're going to be a doctor. So... That was my first foray. I thought, I'm going to okay. write this play. And uh, it went really well. People loved it. And uh, I basically, we started going, doing talent competitions all around London. And we kept winning talent competitions with this one play, stroke comedy sketch wow. that I'd written. And then one day, the other two girls in my 
group didn't turn up for a competition we were in. And I went up by myself and just talked for 10 minutes and people were laughing. And next minute I'd got us through to the final. Wow. Incredible. So people people were saying, oh, you're a stand-up. And I was like, stand-up? What is this stand-up? And that's how I got into stand-up. And then I never looked back. And yeah, I started doing stand-up in England. And uh, over a sort of a 10-year period, I kind of rose through the ranks quite quickly because I took to it like a duck to water. It was what I was meant to be doing all my life. Took to it like a duck to water, fell in love with it. Never went back to engineering. I was just, I was like, I'm going to see what this comedy thing, how this works out. And uh, if it doesn't, then I'll have a little bit of fun and go and get another job in the winter. And that was, well, 1995, I started doing comedy. So what, 28 years or something? And I just never went back. And I rose to the ranks in the UK, did very well, you know, but I was, England is, the TV industry is run by old white men who hire other old white men. So even though I was doing well, isn't that similar to here? Oh, very similar. Oh, very similar. (laughs) Extremely similar. But the difference is the glass ceiling in America is much higher than the glass ceiling in England. So at least when I hit it in America, I'm a millionaire. Well, (laughs) whereas in England, not the case. So I hit the glass ceiling in England. I couldn't get my own shows. I couldn't get my own projects. They'd always book me to be guest stars on other people's shows because I ticked all the boxes, you know, mm-hmm. black woman. And at, at the time they didn't know I was gay, but I ticked at least two of the boxes when people were accused of not having diverse enough programming. They'd go, right, yeah, right. but we had Gina on last week. So they kept using me as an example. But Gina was on the show last week. So we we do have that. So I got fed up with being used as a diversity hire. And I was like, I want to go to America where the dreams are made. And I've been watching American TV shows since I was a kid. And I always thought that everything in America was bigger and better. And uh, even when I was an engineer, I worked for Otis, which was an American company. Because at one point I was planning to transfer and be an engineer in America. So I've been wanting to live in the States since I was three or four years old. Uh Oh, wow. And so so you got to uh, the States. And I remember, Mm -hmm. because I, again, have read and listened to your book, um, <laughs> uh, which I thought, I just have to say, we're going to talk more about that, but I thought it was so interesting when I realized that you're using some of the names in the television show actually are names of your family members. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> but in any case, when you came to um, the United States, you were in, I know, a number of competitions. Talk about some of those. Yes, yeah, so I basically, what got me to America was a TV show called uh, Last Comic Standing. Uh, it was uh, like basically an American Idol, but for comedians. Uh-huh, right. And at the time, it was very much an American show. But I happened to be on tour in Montreal, Canada, and I performed on a show with a comedian who was announced as Rod G from Last Comic Standing. And I was like, what is this show? And while I was sitting backstage, I Googled it. And I found out, you know, I was still living in England at the time and trying to figure out a way to get to America because America is very hard to get visas to get into to work. And then I Googled this show and I was like, oh, it's a stand up com- uh, c- c- competition for comedians. So I emailed my English agent and I was like, there's a TV show called Last Comic Standing. I want to be the first British comic to compete on this show. I don't care whether they pay me or not. I'll fly myself over. I will put myself up as long as I can compete on this show, because th- that is my way into America. Unbeknownst to me, at the same time, they were also looking 
to bring the show international anyway, because the producer on the show, Paige Hurwitz, had come to England at some point and uh, she'd gone to the comedy store in London and had seen me do a set and crush. And she'd gone back to Last Comic Stand and other, the other exec producers and said, listen, I just went to England. There's a bunch of fantastic comedians over there. We should make the show international and audition internationally. And I saw this comedian called Jeannie Ashway, who is perfect for this show. So the universe was coming together while I was going, I want to be on this American show. They were already deciding to go international. So that's how I got on that show, got into the finals of that show, and they got me a work visa. So because I was on this ah, TV show, okay. that's and, how we, you got it. and, and the, the, the show was shot in Los Angeles, they had to get me a work visa and they got me a two year work visa, even though the show was going to run six weeks or something. I and I was yeah. like, oh, my God, this is, does this mean I can step, live in America for two years legally? And they were like, yeah, that's what a two year work visa is. And I was like, oh, my God. So in between shooting days, I went back to England, put my house on the market, sold and gave away everything I owned through a massive goodbye party. And I was like, I'm going to America. The dream has come true. Goodbye, England. And everybody was like, you're crazy. It's only a two-year visa. You're going to have to come back. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to turn that into a green card. And then I'm going to turn that green card into citizenship. Trust me, I'm out of here. Goodbye. And I came out here in 2007. And that was it. So last comic standing from there, I became the only British comedian to perform on Deaf Comedy Jam. And I just stayed and hustled. And once that visa was coming close to being uh, expiring, I applied for the green card. In fact, I applied for the green card a year before the visa expired because I was like, wow. I'm going to get ahead of the game and get my green card because I'm not going back to England. And that's what I did. I got my green card and I've just been here hustling ever since. It took oh my me 13 gosh. years of struggle in America. And, and people who are just, in some cases, uh, starting to know more about you think mm -hmm. it just happened overnight. That's all. Oh, no. People think it it just happened. And it's like, no, I've been doing this work for a long time. And long now time. you're getting the recognition that you deserve. You were on a daily show yeah. know, for a while. As yeah, I did, the, I did the Tonight Show. I did skits on the Jay Leno show. I've done millions of little small TV bits and pieces. Then I was a, a, a British correspondent on the Daily Show. Uh, but the producers on that show didn't were, were cop blocking me, so I only appeared on that show three times. Really, I thought yeah, for some so reason it felt like it was more. Okay. It felt like it was more because I was so good at it, oh. which was the most <laughs> irritating part. You know, because the producers never booked me. You know, oh, okay. I, I'd always been told by Comedy Central that I did not fit their demographic. So Comedy Central considered me too old and too ugly uh, to be on their to appeal to their demographic. But because I knew Trevor Noah and we'd been seen bumping into each other all over the world, right. when he got the gig about a year into him having a gig, about a year or so, I bumped into him, I think in Australia or something, we sat and chatted backstage. And, and then when I got back to New York, he texted me directly saying, I'd love you to come and do some work on my show. So he was the one who booked me for the show, not Comedy Central and not the producers. And because of that, I was not really welcomed there. Even though I came on and killed every segment I did, mm -hmm. killed every segment mm -hmm. that the produce, you know, because you'd have to pitch stories to get on the exactly. show, right. and I keep pitching stories and pitching stories, and they just ignore the stories or not return my emails or go, no, that's not not something where. So I kept pitching and pitching and pitching. In fact, the Harry and Meghan story that uh, 
that I uh, did, which was one of the biggest segments that I did, mm-hmm. big, one of the biggest segments on the show, they turned it down originally. They were like, oh, nobody's, you know, when they first got engaged, right. all that, and, and there was all that stuff about the racism coming up, exactly. you know, as Marco was coming up against. I pitched that story, and they were like, yeah, nobody's really interested in Harry and Meghan. And I was like, are you, are you nuts? And then two weeks later, I did a interview for Channel 4 in England. I saw Harry. that interview. And that interview went absolutely was, viral. That's right. And then it was then the Daily Show came back and went, oh, actually, yeah, let's do that story. And I was like, you idiots, you could have had it first. Yeah. So, well, I struggled at the Daily Show because I couldn't get my stories on that. I think that was the last one I did. And and that one killed and went viral again. And then I kept pitching stories, pitching stories, pitching stories, and nothing was getting picked up. So, you know, I I heard from a source within uh, the show that there were... Uh, producers there that were cop blocking me that were not, you know, that hadn't wanted me in the first place and didn't think I should be on the show. And so that's why my stories weren't. So once I heard that, I just stopped pitching. I was like, well, why am I killing myself? I stopped pitching. And then... Um, well, you continued doing all kinds of uh, oh, I was still specials, touring. Netflix. I was, still doing, I, I was shooting my specials, you know, those our specials that you see on Netflix or that were on Netflix. I don't think they're on there anymore. Their leases run out. I shot them myself. So it's not like people were giving me anything. Netflix weren't giving me specials. Nobody was giving me specials. So you were, let me make sure I understand this so other people understand that you were having those produced and then you were you were taking them to various streaming Yeah, I made them saying, Are you interested? Yeah, I made them myself. I, I rented the theater. I, I sold tickets. I was like a rapper selling mixtapes out the trunk of my car. I <laughs> like my special Laugh Into America that was shot in San Francisco. That was the first special I shot in America. And this was in 2011. Nobody knew who I was. And I was living in uh, LA at the time. So every week I'd fly or drive to San Francisco, do shows for free around San Francisco, then stand outside those shows, handing out flyers going, if you liked me, I'm shooting a special in nine months time. I booked a theater a year in advance and I had no way to know if I was going to sell it out. So I booked this theater a year in advance and then spent a year going back and forth to San Francisco, handing out flyers and begging people to come to my show and just selling tickets piece by piece by piece. It was a little theater. It was like a 350-seater theater. But I sold it out for this one night and then booked my uh, director and producer from England, uh, who I'd shot stuff with before in England, flew him out. I said to him, listen, I've rented an Airbnb in San Francisco. There's going to be seven of us in this house. Uh, you just have to f- find a bed, bring your blankets, because this is how I'm rolling. It's we're MacGyvering this stand-up special, and I flew him in from London, uh, from from England. He lived in Manchester, and then he sourced the camera crew in San Francisco because he knew about that stuff. So I was like, I'm gonna leave the technical stuff to you. I'll pay you. I'll fly you out. I'll put you in this Airbnb. You go get me a, a camera crew. And he sourced all of that, and I, I did everything else. Incredible. Sold the theatre out. And I shot this special. And then when I shot the special, I shot it around. And that's what I did. I shot three specials that way. Okay. That is, that's really, I think, important information for folks who think that things happen in a different way. That Uh so much of this has been just your hard work and your refusal to say, to take no for an answer, right? You're not going to take no. So let's talk, you know, we're going to take a short break. 
And then we're going to come back and talk about uh, your television show uh, and how you got there. Because I know the story and I love the story and I want others to know that what it started and your role and how it started is not how it ended up. So we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, and we're talking to Gina Yashare. We're back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to Mary at GatheringGroundPodcast.com. That's Mary at GatheringGroundPodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. So we're back. I'm excited to uh, be talking with Gina Yashere today. And uh, Gina, extraordinary comic, uh, co-creator, uh, showrunner for CBS's Bob Hart's Abishola Monday Nights. Uh, this is season, you just completed season four and we're looking for season five. But before we talk about the evolution of the stories uh, uh, from the sitcom, let's talk about how you got to Bob Hart's Abishola, which was in some ways kind of random, wasn't it? Very random. So in uh, 2017, I was trying to sell a TV show based on my journey. So that I'd written a, like I'd written up a whole, what's the word? I had a whole presentation mm-hmm. of um, this, what this TV show would be about, would be like a single camera thing covering my life in England, born to, in Nigerian immigrant parents, becoming an engineer, and then coming out to America. So I was trying to sell this show in 2017. And I took it to every network. I was living in New York at the time um, with my wonderful Mrs. Nina, who you know well. I love her to pieces, yes. We were living in New York, uh, very happily. And I was flying, I flew out to LA a couple of times and met with various different networks pitching my show. I pitched it to everybody. NBC, CBS, HBO, Hulu, Netflix, everybody pitching this show based on my life. Nobody bought it. Like, even though the pitches all went fantastic, like, I'd leave the pitch. And me and my partner, Devon Shepard, who were going to create the show together, uh, we'd leave the pitch. And I'm a performer. I know how to perform. So I'd perform the hell out of these pitches. And then people would laugh and go, oh, my God, this is so amazing. It's so funny. And then I'd leave the room. And then they'd go, we're not sure we Mm. know what we can name. So I got literally got every door in Hollywood slammed in my face. Uh, Nobody picked the show up. So that was very disappointing. And so I put the show aside. I was like, well, you know, I've always found that I'm ahead of my time. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Throughout my entire career, I've been ahead of my time. Where I'd go, it, same thing happened to me in England. Where I'd go and pitch an idea for a show, and they'd go, ah, and then two years later, I'd see them doing the exact idea that I pitched, but with someone else younger and hotter. Mm-hmm. And it happened to me so many times in my career that I'd kind of almost given up in 2017. I was like, mm-hmm. well, I've pitched this as a show about my life. Uh, and the stories are so unique. I can't understand how nobody would want to, to put this on TV. So obviously my face does not fit in this industry. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, but obviously 
my face doesn't fit. And I kind of put the project down and kind of just let it gather dust and, and just went back to my touring and doing my stand up. And then at one point I was like, well, I'm coming up to 50. I can't be touring like this forever and not being famous enough to sell out arenas to make enough money. You know, I'm selling out, I'm, I'm doing small comedy clubs and, you know, and by 2017, I was like, I'm done with these comedy clubs. I'm just going to book little theatres and MacGyver a tour like I did with my special. Mm-hmm. So I book these small theatres and then just promote as much as I can. And so that's what I was starting to do. I was like, I'm not going to go to these comedy clubs who are paying me peanuts for six shows, you know, f- Thursday, Friday, Thursday, two shows, Friday, two shows, Saturday, two shows, Sunday, two shows. And they're paying you like 300 or $400 a show, which is not enough for the, you know. That's the first, I just want to say that was one of the first times we saw you in Chicago yeah. was in Rosemont. Oh, yeah, no, Zanies. Oh, we saw you in Zanies too, though. Yeah. We saw you there. We saw no, you Rosemont was Zanies. Zanies yeah. owned the, the, the both of them. Yep. So, yep. Yeah, so eventually I was like, I'm, I'm working and I'm doing an hour set every night. So you're doing six, seven shows. And by the end of the weekend, you haven't got a lot of money to show for it. And I was like, if I just rent a little theatre and do one night, I can earn similar or even more money than I can of doing a whole weekend of comedy shows, doing six shows. So I started doing that. Um, so that's what I was doing. I was like, well, I'm doing that, but I can't do that forever. If I don't get famous enough to be able to sell out large theaters and make better money, I can't be 65 still trying to sell 200 seats in a theater somewhere and, and traveling at the, the shit. You know, yeah. I love traveling when I was in my 20s and 30s, even into my 40s. But come back to 50, I was like, I'm tired of being on a plane every week and staying in, you know, various different hotels, ranging in quality from Jesus Christ did a murder take place in this room too. You know what I mean? Which which we can all, by the way, we can observe ourselves when you do your hotel. My hotel reviews. <laughs> so that's the thing. So I was starting to think, I need to look outside of this industry in case this isn't working out. Right. So I was thinking maybe I'll go into public speaking, motivational. That's what I was starting to look at because I was like, I don't know if this comedy thing is going to, I've been in it for 30, nearly 30 years. Well, it was like 25 at this point. And I was like, and I don't see the progression that I would have hoped for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was in 2017. I started to win that way. I, I, start, I was just still selling my specials and that was giving me an income of sorts. Um, then I get a call at the blue. So I just came back from Montreal, Canada, doing the Just for Last Festival. I get a call out of the blue. My agent calls me and says, Hey, I just had a call from um Chuck Laurie Productions, Warner Brothers in Burbank, and they want to meet you on Monday morning. Now I'd just come back from months of touring. I was exhausted. And I'd said to Nina, I'm not going. I said to my agent before I left, when I come back from this tour, I want three weeks to four weeks off, no traveling. I don't want to go anywhere. So don't put anything in my calendar where I have to get on a plane. So I come back on the Thursday night and he calls me Friday morning to say, they want to meet you on Monday. And I'm like, I'm not getting, I'm tired. Didn't I tell you? And I've had so many meetings where I've gone in and they've blown smoke up up my ass and nothing happened. So I was like, nah, I'm not interested in this meeting. It's just going to be another bullshit meeting. And I really, I'm just tired. I don't want it. And he was like, this is Chuck Lorre. And I didn't know who he was. He was like, put the phone down. Google Chuck Lorre, call me back. Then yeah. I was like, Google Chuck Lorre. And I go, oh, it's the man behind the Big Bang Theory, Two and a Half Men, Mike and Molly. So I'm thinking, oh, it's a sitcom guy. And my dream has always been to be the best friend in a sitcom. 
which would help me sell out theaters. So I was like, oh, maybe they saw me somewhere and uh, want to put me in a sitcom. Okay, fine, I will go. But they have to fly me first class. I'm not going economy. I need first class ticket and a five-star hotel. And after much wrangling back and forth between my agent and them, they finally went, all right, we'll fly you first class. So they flew me out. I go to this meeting. I walk into a room with Chuck Lorre and Al Higgins and Eddie Gordetsky, who are two of the exec producers who's, who have worked with them on a lot of shows. And I walk into the meeting and basically Chuck tells me, um, I love Billy Gardell, who I made Michael Molly with. Uh, I want to make another show uh, with Billy Gardell. But this time, you know, this was in the middle of all the Trump craziness. He's like, this time I want the female um, protagonist to be a Nigerian woman. I want her to be African. I want her to be an African immigrant. Uh, because I want to counteract all that this Trump nonsense that's going on. And I just came back from a vacation in Africa and I love the people. And I was like, oh, Africa, where exactly? But okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a continent, but whatever. Okay, you came back from Africa. Good for you. And um, so, I, so I'm like, so, and I'm thinking, you want me to be this Nigerian woman? Because I've met, obviously, I'm not Hollywood standards for the love interest in any show. Uh, so I was confused. I was like, do you want me to be? And he was like, not necessarily. And I was like, well, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> and he goes, what we want is, you know, we're three white guys. We, we can't do this. We need, you know, you to consult on this project, let's say. You, you'll be a consultant helping to make sure that this African family is authentic. Right. So I'm thinking to myself, hmm. consultant? Mm-hmm. What would be an African oh this sounds bullshit this just sounds like nonsense I'm I'm not interested in this but obviously I didn't say that in the room I just pretended to be interested so I was like okay uh, a consultant okay and uh how did you find me and I'm thinking they're gonna go oh we we've seen your Netflix specials we've seen you on the daily show we've seen night show we've seen all your work we've followed you they went oh we typed Nigerian female comic into Google and uh and you were the best one that came up. And so at is this that point, just wild? That's a, that's a wild story. Wild. And, and so at this point in my head, I'm fucking, I'm furious. I'm absolutely furious. I'm like, you know, this is the epitome of white privilege in Hollywood that you can fly me first class all the way from New York to Los Angeles, put me up in a five star hotel on a random whim and Google search. Because because you can. That's so I'm right. furious at this point. Anyway, so but I don't tell them that. I, I play very calm in the meeting. I go, very interesting. Okay. Um, thanks for having me uh, in for this meeting. Uh, we'll talk soon. And I left the meeting and I called my agent and I was like, absolutely not. I have no interest in this project. It sounds exploitative. I've had my ideas ripped off in the past where I've gone into meetings and spilled my soul out. And then they've said, oh, no, nah, this is not for us. And then three years later, I see my exact ideas being implemented with somebody else. So I was like, I've had my ideas stolen before. This consultant thing sounds like nonsense. It just sounds like they want to exploit my brain, steal my ideas, steal my culture. And then I'll be cut, you know, cast aside mm-hmm. and I'm and, and in a worse position than I was. But, right. and, you know, so I was like, no, tell them thank you. But no, thank you. And my agent was like, oh, my God, um, I'll give you a day or two to think about it. And I was like, no, I had the meeting. I would like you to book, get them to book my flight back. So this uh, this was on Monday. I had the meeting. I was like, I'd like to I'll stay in L.A. for another day and just hang out and see my friends because I used mm-hmm. to live here. And then I'd like to fly home on Wednesday, please. Thank you. 
Luckily, I told my brother, my younger brother, who's the wisest in my family, and my best friend, Lila, that I was going for this meeting. So they obviously called me to see how it went. And I told them I was going to turn it down. And both my brother and my best friend screamed at me uh, in unison down the phone saying, this is an opportunity. Are you an idiot? Like you've been complaining about the lack of representation of our people on TV and the lack of accurate authentic portrayals of us. Mm -hmm. And here's an opportunity for you to consult on the show and make this happen. And you're turning it down because of your pride or your ego. You're an idiot. And my brother went into a, and my brother has anecdotes to back up everything. He was, he told me a bunch of anecdotes about Hollywood shows where actors have turned it down. Then another actor has come in and, and, and it's blown up and he had all the, and I was like, yeah, but they don't want me on the show. I'm just a consultant. And he was like, it doesn't matter. Just be in the room. That's Dick. right. That's be right. And I think that's room. an important story, right? Important lesson yeah. to get in the room first. Yeah. yeah. Right? So I always turned down being mm -hmm. in the room. Mm -hmm. So I uh, I was like, okay, maybe you're right. So I called my agent back and I was like, have you turned down <laughs> that gig? And he was like, hell no. I was waiting to, to till you were on a plane back to New York before I made that call. So I said, tell him I'll come in for another meeting. And we'll go from there. So I went back in for another meeting, got in the room with them. And once I got in the room with Chuck, I was like, okay, this guy's no nonsense. He he doesn't bullshit. He's very honest in his opinions. And, and I think maybe I might be able to trust this guy. And I was like, I'm in the room. I might as well. And, I, and the juices started flowing. So I started telling him about my life. And at one point I was like, in my head, I was like, Gina, you're giving away the show that you pitched a year ago. Yeah. You wanted Mm -hmm. And you're going to plunder the show that you pitched and give it to them and risk them stealing it. And I was like, well, I pitched the show. Nobody wanted it. Here's a chance for me to get uh, some iteration of it made with right. this dude. Right. So I'm going to go all in. This is my last hurrah. I'm going to throw everything in. And if it doesn't work out, then I will figure out a way to leave this industry and go and do something else. Um, so this I didn't is, realize that you were thinking that as yeah. you you considered this opportunity. You were that close to saying, I'm done with it. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Okay. I was still doing my stand up and I was right. I was going to spend the next couple of years doing as much stand up as I could, saving my money. Yep. And then I was going to and I was looking for an out to okay. something else to do, because I was like, I'm coming up to 50 years old. I can't mm -hmm. do this mm -hmm. that much longer. If the industry is going to keep banging doors in my face and I'm never going to make it then why am I banging my head against this brick wall? Let me do something else. Okay. So, yeah, so once I got in the room, I started giving them ideas for characters and and, and basically plundering my own personal story for this show. And I, I helped them come up with the names of the characters. I helped them come up with the storyline. You know, if you, Abishola's story is basically based on my mother's story. Mm -hmm. My mom and dad met in England they had us all. My the England, in England, it was super racist at the time. They couldn't get jobs in their professions. My dad had a PhD. He was a qualified lawyer. My dad was a, uh, my mum was a a school teacher and a prince school principal, and they couldn't get jobs in those areas in England. And so my dad was like, "Well, let's go back to Nigeria and take the children. Let's go." And my mum was like, "No, my kids are British. I, I want them to have the opportunities that being British entails. I'm staying." Mm -hmm. And my dad basically got on a plane and went back to Nigeria and never came back. So my mother was left in England raising us by herself. So if you've watched the show, Bob Hart's Abishola, 
That's right. That is Abishola's story. So basically, right. I plundered my life story and the show that I'd been pitching in 2017 and fed it into this show and, and gave them everything. And you then also, you became a character on the show because that wasn't the beginning. Let's talk that a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so after I spent, basically, uh, it turned from another meeting to I stayed in Los Angeles for another nearly three weeks writing this pilot with them. I stayed in the room. I just kept coming back there. They were like, Chuck was like, let's write this thing. And I was like, all right, let's it. write this thing. Let's get it done. So I, I made three pairs of underwear last two and a half weeks, <laughs> washing them in the hotel sink every night because I get up in the morning, I put, put my freshly washed dry underwear on after I showered and then I drive to Warner Brothers and we'd wow. be in the room all day and we knocked out this pilot. So after two days of working with them, Chuck and the guy, you know, got his a representative to call my agent and go, forget this consultant thing. We cannot do this thing without Gina. So we're going to make her a co-creator of the show, which she has never done with anybody before. Made me a co-creator, made me a producer on the show. So now I'm like, oh, now I own a piece of this show. So if this show gets made, this is amazing. Right. And right. I was like, well... I'm writing the show, I'm writing this pilot, and my dream has always been to be the best friend in a sitcom. So I uh, I start thinking, how am I going to get in the show? I don't want to be Abishola. I don't want to be the love interest. I don't want to be the main person. I just want to be the funny friend because mm-hmm. that is what I'm made to do. And so I just started pitching in the room. You know what? Abishola needs a best friend. Don't you think she needs a best friend? <laughs> and so I created this best friend character. And at the time, she wasn't one of the series regulars. She was only going to be a guest star. So she didn't even have a name. She was just called Woman on the Bus. On the whiteboard, she was just Woman on the Bus. <laughs> but I knew that that was the role that I was creating for myself. They didn't know that, but I knew it. Right. And so we wrote this pilot. After three weeks or two and a half weeks, we had this beautifully crafted pilot. And uh, Chuck was like, well, I've sent it into CBS, and I think they, they like it. They're interested in it. And if they are interested in this show, you know, if you want to be on the show, if you want to play Abishola, you know, you're going to have to audition. And I turned to Chuck and I was like, I don't want the role of Abishola. And they all looked at me like, what? And I, was, I just pointed to the whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And I was like, woman on the bus. Mm-hmm. I want woman on the bus. And Chuck looked at me and went, you're very fucking smart. <laughs> <laughs> and that's basically how it came about. So he wrote the wow. pilot. And then that was in August 2018. I went back to Los Angeles and went back. I went back to New York. I left LA, went back to New York after that two and a half weeks and continued my normal touring life because we I didn't know whether this show was going to get put, picked right. up. Right. Um, and he, uh, so Chuck told me, we'll probably hear if they want a pilot in a couple of months. You know, pay two or three months that they'll let you know, they'll let you know, let us know. And then about three months later, I'm driving through New York on my way to meet Nina for lunch at her work. And I get a call from Chuck's assistant. This is, um, you know, Chuck's assistant. Uh, Chuck is on the other line. And I, so I pull over the car. I'm like, ooh. And he goes, uh, CBS like the pilot, so they want to actually make a pilot. And, I, and, uh. then, he goes, and then he goes to me, are you a communist? And I was like, no. And it goes good because if we make a good show, you're going to be a wealthy woman. And I swear to God, 
my hands were shaking. Oh my God, Gina. I was like, this could be the opportunity that changes yes. mine and Nina's life. So that Everything. was in, that was in sort of September, October. I flew back in April to shoot the pilot. And they told me, and I was like, we shoot the pilot. And then if, and I said to them, if this show gets made, when do I come back to start working on the show? And they're like, well, we shoot the pilot in April. We go to the, uh, if we get picked up, we go to the upfronts in May. And then June 6th, around that time is when we start working on the show. And I'm like, but it's April. So I've only got two months to pack up my whole life in New York. That's exactly right. And and that's what you did, didn't you? <laughs> well, what I did was I uh, I don't like renting places because I was like, I want to buy a place. I had some savings. So I was like, well, the savings were going to go towards my retirement. If I left this industry, I'm going to take that chunk of savings. I'm just going to buy a house in L.A. And I bought the house before the pilot had even finished shooting. I was like, I'm wow. just going to buy a house because it takes a while to buy a house. It's a it, process. Yes, it does. I was like, I need this house ready to go for me to move into because I'm expected to start work on this show June 2nd or whatever date it was. June, I think it was June 6th. Uh-huh. I, so I need to buy a house now and have that. So I called my friend who, who I was staying with at the time, who was a realtor. And I was like, find the house, preferably like move in ready. Right. Turn key. Right. So I can furnish it. And, and so I we looked at a few houses and I think it was maybe the fifth house I saw was a new build house in North Hollywood. And it was within the budget. And I saw it and I went, this is the one. Let's go. And people were like, you're crazy. The, you, the show hasn't even been picked up yet. And I was like, well, if the show gets picked up, I've got a house ready to go. It's already newly built. So all I have to do is buy furniture and furnish it. And, and, and I'll have a place six minutes from the studio to work from. And if right. the show doesn't get picked up, well, then I've got a really expensive rental property. It's an investment either way. So so I bought this house and um, basically I closed on the house June 2nd. Wow. And in the meantime, me and Nina had been going online, just buying furniture and everything online because we were still living in New York. Right. And right. I was still on tour. So I'd tour and then come home in the week to New York and me and Nina would be online just looking at couches going, I think this will fit. Uh, according to the measurements on this plan of the house, this couch should fit. And basically we just bought everything online. I wasn't even there for the walkthrough of the house um, because I was still on tour June 2nd. So Nina had to fly from New York to LA and we did the walkthrough on FaceTime. Wow. Because I was still in Boston doing a show. So she did the walkthrough of the house. Then she stayed in LA for a a couple of weeks. And then I flew back to LA and then we sat there and the furniture came over the next four days we furnished the house in three days and then I started working on the show on the fourth and we lived sort of by coastal by coastal yeah Nina was in New York I was in LA and she'd come over at weekends right to hang out and that's how we lived for a while until COVID happened and then COVID happened Uh, you know 2020 she Nina's birthday is in March she flew over for the weekend in March 2020 I threw her birthday party for all our friends and then she flew back on the Tuesday and then the world started to shut down uh-huh so I called her and I was like 
get on a plane and turn around and come back here immediately because the world is shutting down and I don't know when it's going to reopen. So we might be stuck on the opposite sides of the co- uh, of the country. So get back here. Mm-hmm. So she, she, she flew home on the Tuesday, turned around, flew back on the Thursday mm-hmm. and didn't get back to New York again for another three years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. There was property and things you had to deal with in New York, but you did all that virtually, right? You had to do it all virtually. Yeah. And eventually, uh, you know, so eventually she, yeah, we sold the house in New York, but but we did it all virtually. Incredible. We couldn't even pack up our stuff. All our stuff was there. You know, all my clothes, everything was there. I I had to buy all new, a whole new wardrobe in LA because all my stuff was in New York. So this is how COVID impacted it. But here's, here's, I think, an important point. The show was still being written. It was still being produced, and it was being received. Absolutely. Well. So, yeah, we uh, we we were <clears throat> we got twenty two episodes. We ended up doing twenty because then the world shut down. So we had like a three month hiatus, and in the meantime, Warner Brothers was trying to work out how we could make this show safely. So when we came back for season two, it was all on Zoom. So they set us all up. So you know all the pre-production was online. So mm-hmm. we didn't have to be in a writer's room. We, we, mm-hmm. we, we were Zooming. Right, right. We, we've done mainly Zooming for, for the last, you know, three seasons. Exactly. And then on set, everybody wore masks, got tested every day, all of that thing. So we still managed to make... So the second season, we only got 18 episodes because by the time people were allowed to start going out into the world again, it was too late to make the whole 22. Right, so we got right. 18 to, episodes but then season three we've got the full 22 and season four the full 22. And aren't you happy that you're on a network I mean it'd be great to be on any platform but networks are where you get the 22 seasons you don't necessarily get that on a streaming service. But yeah the 22 episodes yeah you don't on a streaming six four eight episodes ten if you're lucky so it's been amazing it's been amazing because you know as a stand-up comedian I earned a good living but you know, I had a lot of expenses, so I kind of, I didn't live hand to mouth, so to speak, to speak but it was tour to tour. So yeah. I, I didn't have any pension set up. I had a couple of uh, real estate investments, but I didn't have any real pension pot. I had no investments. I had nothing. So I was like, I, uh, you know, so I'm, that's when I, when I started to worry when I was coming up to 50. Right. But I've right. got no pension. I've got nothing. Right. And this show was giving me that. So in the Lovely. last... But, you know, these 20, these high number of episodes and being able to be an actor and writer on the show, I've been able to, you know, I've saved diligently. I've like, right, let's get this pension pot stacked Absolutely. up. Absolutely. So, so now stacked, yeah. you have that background, you have that piece yeah. done. And tell yeah. people what being a showrunner means on a on a network show. So I got promoted to showrunner season four. So I went up the ranks because obviously I was completely inexperienced. So I started the show as a producer then got uh, promoted the next season to co- co-executive producer, to co-EP. And I was that for two seasons as I learned. Mm-hmm. And then I got promoted to showrunner, which means I'm running the show. Me and my partner, Matt Ross, uh, we are both running the show, which means budget. We deal with the budgets. We deal with the casting. We deal with the sets. The script. The scripts, we run the scripts, so we decide what story's going to be told. The writers write the scripts. We all write together. So we all write together, and then we delegate who writes what scenes, and then I come I come back, I go through the scripts, and I go, this isn't right, this isn't right. I rewrite stuff by stuff. So basically, we run the entire show. So Chuck has kind of trusted us with 
this baby and so we're running it now yeah it's and, incredible and, yeah. and 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 again for folks who are listening who have not seen it um i i just want to encourage you to check it out it's really funny and the stories you've really expanded over the years i can tell the yeah. kind of stories you're telling and you've brought in you know this lesbian uh you know that culturally that was going to be a yes. big deal um no, but i really was yeah. happy to see you tell that story as well um the parenting between um abishola and uh can't think of billy's character's name bob. Yes, bob. bob bob how can i yeah the name bob, bob, Abishola, right. bob. Bob. <laughs> um but you really tr- I, it seems like you really um just told stories in a very different way while relating them to this um origin story around being nigerian which is yeah. something we have not seen before on television never it's seen incredible it's yeah incredible so you know what this is what i want to do i want to make a turn and i want i want to talk about your book because okay. there are many of these stories that you've told here that people can hear you know even greater detail about in the book that has just come out in paperback why did you decide to write a book at this point it's kind of funny i didn't decide actually it was kind of a random thing so on instagram and facebook every week i do throwback thursdays or flashback Fridays. There's and you happy. do also tunes on Tuesday. I do tunes on Tuesday. <laughs> I dance to a song and you have to guess the song. So I've got various little things that I do to engage my audience. So there's tunes on Tuesdays. Every Tuesday I play an old school song. I dance to it with Nina in the background. That and is very guys, funny, by the way. And you, and you have to guess the song. <laughs> I know Nina, I never used to do it with Nina. It used to be just me. Uh-huh. And then eventually she just started coming in. And now everybody's like, we want Nina every week. So she's mm-hmm. taking over my tunes. Mm-hmm. And then I do my hotel reviews. And I also do the, you know, there's a, a hashtag going around called uh, Throwback Thursdays, Flashback Fridays, where you right. post an old picture of yourself. So I started doing it every week, uh, diligently, posting an old picture of myself and telling the story behind the picture. And people used to love those stories. And people always like were like, oh, my God, these stories are so interesting. You need to write a book. You need to write a book. So people kept saying and then one day, uh, my friend and fellow comedian, Michelle Buteau. Um, love her so she's much. Awesome. Love her. Actually, she's, she's going to be in Chicago in the next week or so. We're going to see her. Yeah. Oh, you are? Well, if you see her after the show, tell her. Gina I says, will. Gina says, what up, bitch? <laughs> That's how we talk. I'm going to say just like that. Okay. <laughs> say just like that. So Michelle Buteau calls me and goes, listen, uh, you need to write a book. And I'm writing a book right now. And my literary agent, my lit agent is a white gay man who loves women of color and wants to champion women of color. I think you two should meet because he follows you on Instagram and he fit, and he loves your stories and he thinks that there's a book in there. Wow. So I met with Robert Ginsler, the lit agent. We hit it off straight away. And he was like, yeah, you need to write a book. So, you know, those throwback Thursdays and, and that you do, get them all together and write me up a book proposal and I will get you a, a publisher. And that's what happened. So I went home and I was like, I don't know what a book proposal is. So he sent me examples of book proposals. I was like, all right, I can do this. Wrote this proposal, sent it to him. And then he put it out at various publishers. And around that time, there was a black woman called uh, Tracy Sherrod, who worked at the time for HarperCollins, uh, one of their subsidiary publishers called Armistad, mm-hmm. who'd also been an avid follower of mine. 
and had emailed my manager six months before going, if Gina ever considers writing a book, please let me know. And I've been like, I haven't got got the patience or the attention span to write a book. So I've never really got, I was like, yeah, one day. But anyway, it all came, the universe came together because obviously my lit agent sent it to her and she was like, I want it Mm. done. It's done, done deal. We're getting the book, which is good because nobody, no other publishers wanted it anyway. So nice. So I went went where it was supposed to go, Gina, right? Went where it was was supposed to go. So I wrote this book. Originally, I was going to, and so this was a year before or six months before I got Bob Hart's Abishola. So I got the book first, but I'm a massive procrastinator, massive. And I didn't do anything. Like, so they were like, oh, you've got a year to write this book. And I was like, I've got a year to write this book. And then I did nothing. And then I got Bob Hart's Abishola. And I was like, oh my God, how am I going to write this book when I'm my life has been taken over by this TV show? I'm in trouble now. So I started interviewing ghostwriters. And I settled on one ghostwriter. But when she started writing the stuff, I was like, oh, this ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. I should have known. When, when a... Black woman uses the word diaspora 76 times in a sentence. It's, it just wasn't. It may not be a, a match. It may not be. It was not a match. <laughs> I don't talk like that. You know what I mean? So <laughs> the first sort of drafts of what she was writing, it just even though I'd sat, spent many hours with her, she recorded me telling my stories. And I was like, I'd like it written in my voice. It just wasn't my voice. So we had an amicable parting. Mm-hmm. And I basically went back to square one and wrote the book myself. So basically, you know, it, again, the universe came together to help me. Yes. The universe is like, I got you about you, dummy. Okay. <laughs> and COVID came. And so I was at home for three months with COVID, not writing a show. You know, we'd finished waiting, making the first season. And there was a good three month gap mm-hmm. going to start work on the second season. And we, everybody was locked down in their homes. So I was was at home with Nina. We were having a great time in our brand new house in North Hollywood. So I started writing this book. I went back to square one and wrote the vast majority of this book during COVID. (laughs) Well, it is, it has been, I know, well received. What, what has been, what's been most surprising about folks' reaction to the book? And have people made the connection between some of the characters in the show and your family members? Some have, some have. But people, because I look so different from Kenny, people yes. still uh, go, are you, you know, I've, I've met people and they've gone, and I've, I've been playing bad, like I play pickleball. So I wear my Bob Hart's Abishola t-shirt to pickleball and people can't think, oh my God, I love that show. It's such a great show. Don't you think? Isn't it great? Are you involved in the show? And I'm standing there, I'm like, yeah, I, as well as creating the show, I'm Kemi, and they're like, you are not. So people cannot always tell. Or sometimes people come up and go, you, your mm-hmm. voice sounds a little bit like that woman on that Bob Hart mm-hmm. show. So I get that sometimes. But um, I can't remember what the question was. I've completely gone. No, no, no. Just in terms of how folks have reacted to the book. Yeah, so people. And, and the, comparing really, it to the television show. Yeah, people have really. You know, people who've read the book love the book. The reviews have been just stunningly amazing. People really have 
Scotland and learn and they you know I get a lot of people writing me saying that they've learned so much more about me and mm-hmm. and the, and the, the journey they didn't realize what the journey was like and so now I'm working on turning that into a TV show so it's the book is called Cat Handed which means left-handed it's another old English slang word for cat handed and I think it comes from poo because cack is another word for poo as in doo-doo as in ah okay poo. and you <laughs> I know, did not in, realize in a lot of cultures and in the bible as well yeah, the, the left hand is seen as unclean yeah. and in a lot of cultures African culture you know Arab culture Asian culture the left hand is the hand used to supposedly used to wipe your bum when you go for poo? Hence, cat handed. I think that's where it comes from. And cat handed also means awkward and clumsy. So that's why I called the book that because I'm left handed, and also I'm a little bit clumsy because I'm left handed. Because the world is made for right handed people. It is. It is. And um, yeah, and my career has been a crazy, awkward, weird, never a straight line. So that's why I called the book cat handed. And I'm now working on writing a show based on that again oh really okay <laughs> again, so another book is on the way well i'm, I'm writing a sh- tv show based oh on a tv show oh uh, i left the book open oh, for a second right. book that's actually why we couldn't we didn't meet last week because you were working on a show exactly i'm working <laughs> okay. on the show i'm writing okay. the script for the show and Obviously, while I'm on strike. So this is my own personal writing. It's not for a studio or anybody. It's just for myself. That's right. But this is a time to get that kind of thing done, right? Well, exactly. You have, so I'm you working this, on that. Time. And I've got enough for a second book. I ended Cat Handed on me getting on a plane to come to America. So the whole journey in America, all the struggles that I went Absolutely. through. Absolutely. There's a whole nother book in that. So keep buying Cat Candid. Yes. So I sell enough books to make it to p- the publisher will go, oh, let's get another one out of it. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to be promoting that as well with yeah. this episode. So yeah. what would you say as, as we get close to wrapping up here, what would you say are some of the uh, two key, key things you would share with someone who is you know trying to do what you're doing, who feels really like the misogyny, the racism, um, you know, the sexism is is real. And and how do you sort of keep going? How do you have that motivation to keep going when there's a lot of no's, when actually what you're looking for are the yeses? Uh, so how I circumvented a lot of that was making my own content, you know. So become your own content creator. Yeah, we're in a world now where you don't have to wait for the gatekeepers. That's right. You know, Insecure came from awkward black girl absolutely online that's right just making her own show online getting her friends calling in favors and shooting her own stuff and that's what we have to do now uh so i would say get together with with your friends and make your own projects and put your stuff out online there's an audience there for it and when and when there's an audience and you gain your own audience then they will eventually come to you and that's what i did with my stand-up specials uh, I created my own own audience. I shot my own specials. I was like, I'm going to put them out there. I'm not going to wait for Netflix to give me a special. They may never give me a special. Let me just make my own special. And then I'll become undeniable to them. And eventually they came and I got a special. Right. But the that's first right. two hour specials were my own, made myself. So that's I had no idea. Thing. Yeah, yeah. The hour specials that you see on my website that you can buy on geniashray.com because they are now no longer on Netflix because the lease is up. And so they reverted to my ownership. So you can buy the specials on my website, geniashfair.com. But I made those myself with my money. 
Okay. I put my so, money in. I, I invested in my own talent. So that's a piece of advice number one. Okay. Piece of advice number two. This is it's taken me a long time to even heed this piece of advice myself. It's concentrate on your own journey. Don't look at other people. Put blinkers on. You know, yeah. You know, I don't know what you guys call. It. I think you guys call them blinders over here that the horses wear mm-hmm. on yes. the sides of the head so that they right. can't look sideways. They right. just exactly. So you need to, because I spent a lot of time in my early career, not even early career, up until a couple of years ago, and I still kind of fall into that trap sometimes now, where I'm looking at my peers going, how did they get that? I'm better than that person. I should have that. Mm-hmm. How did, I'm better than him. Why did he get that? This mm-hmm. isn't fair. And I got very angry and bitter for a while when I was seeing my peers who are not as good as me being rewarded and while yes. I was being left yes. behind. And it yes. can make you very angry and very bitter. And the mm-hmm. negativity is is not just inside. It, it comes out through your pores in small ways that you don't even know. And it feeds and it just exacerbates the situation you're in. So the day that I decided to stop doing that and go, you know what? I'm doing something that I love for a living. And 98% of the planet don't get to do that. I'm doing something for a living that I love doing. Let me concentrate on enjoying this journey and enjoying doing what I'm doing. And just for a year, let me just try and stop looking at other people and just concentrate on what I'm doing and just enjoy what I'm doing. And I tell you what, Mary, the day I started doing that, it's like the universe was like, oh, she's ready. And then abundance. Mm. Within a year of starting doing that, that's when Netflix came to me and gave me the special that I'd been wanting for so long. That's when I sold my other special to NBC. That's when I got the call for the Bob Hart Sabashola. It all started to come. And, you know, so for a while I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing, I'm happy. And then I get to a point where I'm like, I start to fall back into my old habits. Mm-hmm. I'm like, hold on a minute. We're making this wonderful show. Why are we not getting Emmy nominations? How come this show is getting Emmy nominations? Mm. And they're not getting nom- Emmy And then I started to find myself doing that again. And then I have to put myself back and go, hey, listen, Gina, you are in a position now that you would have dreamed of being in five years ago. Don't start getting hung up on Emmys and stuff like that. Concentrate on the fact that you're making an amazing show that's been seen by millions of people. Millions of people. And you're making great money that you've actually been able to set up your pension plan. And now you've got a much better future than you had five years ago. So stop. So I had to actually tell myself that, but I still, you know, sometimes I still find myself doing that, but that is one good bit of advice. Just concentrate on your own journey. Enjoy the journey for whatever it is. Be happy you're alive. Be happy that you're striving to, 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 to make, to fulfill those dreams. Enjoy that journey. So essentially stay in your lane. (laughs) <laughs> yeah stay in yeah. your lane and do what yeah. you've been trying to do and and be focused yeah. on it okay focused. so focused. so here's a here's something because we're all worried about the sep- the fall season um <laughs> what what are we expecting when when do we think we're gonna have some updates about okay we're coming to an agreement uh with regard to the the strike and when are you all going to go back and start writing because i think from previous years you had mentioned, like, I was trying to get you to do something one July. You're like, we're going to be writing in July, Mary. I cannot 
you know, maybe yeah. over the weekend, but we're writing in July. So yeah. what are we thinking is going to happen? What's going to happen is one of two things. And I don't know which one, which one it's going to be. It all depends on the greed of the studios, because this is what this was all about. It's the greed of the studios. Because I don't know if you heard that a while, not long ago, halfway into this, this strike, uh, an executive was quoted as saying, oh, yeah, we're going to let them let this strike yes. run a bit longer until yep. they all start losing their apartments. Their homes. Yeah, mm -hmm. I did hear that. Yeah. And then, yeah, and and that their thinking is that we'll become so desperate that we'll come back to the table willing to take any deal just to get back to work. And all they did was strengthen our resolve when that came out. So we are ready to go as long as this needs to go. Um, what I think may happen, either they either if they ha still have that stupid mindset, they'll try and push it past the holidays to next yeah. year, and then hope that we are so desperate after the holidays that we'll come back and do any deal. But if wow. they do that, they'll be biting off their nose to spite their face because then they will have no programming for next year. Right. No. That's right. They'll have none. That's right. There's only so much reality show you can do. Exactly. <laughs> so they'll be losing a yeah. lot more money if they let right. it run. Okay. So I think they'll probably go to maybe October and they'll go, all right. Because if they don't get this strike done by October and get us back to work before the end of this year, then there'll be no programming for next year. Because yeah. we need at least, usually we need, our pre-production is two months where we sit and start knocking out scripts for right. two months pre-production. Right, right. So why, by the time we start filming, we've got some scripts in the bag. So if they don't get this done by October, they're going to have nothing for next year. For January, so I, I think they're going to drag it out, drag it out, and then come October, they're going to go, fine! That's what's going to happen. Right. Because at the end of the day, these studios, they all want different things. Amazon and Apple don't care about television. They can keep the strike going five years if they want, because the major bulk of their profit does not come from television. Television is a television is almost a hobby for Amazon and Apple. <laughs> yeah. Amazon owns all industry right now. Yeah. And Apple, is, all their money is phones and laptops and Apple products. TV is an afterthought. So for the Warner Brothers and the Disney's to be in 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 with Dis and um, Apple and Amazon, they don't want the same things. Amazon and Apple are not losing money. Okay, they're not All losing right. money. All right, is nothing to them. Whereas Warner Brothers and Disney are losing money, so they're going to have to. Basically, I think the AMTM or whatever the hell they're called, those the the group of studios, they're they they've already started infighting as Warner and Disney and all the big studios that rely on television have realized. They're screwing up by hanging out with Amazon and Apple. Oh my God! All right, well we're gonna we're gonna light a candle and uh, hope that things are resolved sooner rather than later. Yeah. And I want to uh, just again we want to give out your website, GinaYashare.com, where yes. you can get all of the specials that you can't find now on Netflix. And you if you want a signed copy of my book, signed copy, but you know what? You ran copy? out of books in Chicago, and Vince actually, I was in line to get Vince a copy the producer, and I said, you know what, I, I'll get one, but they did run out while we were there. <laughs> That's it, but if you want a personally signed copy, uh, you can go on my website and buy direct from me via my website, 
and I will personally sign a copy right. for you. But if you don't, you can just go on Amazon and just buy the book. No, <laughs> we'll no, no. Them. We want a personally signed copy. I promised Vince he was going to get a personally signed copy. So All right. I, we're going to do that. All uh, right. And I just want to say thank you so much. But first, I have to say, Toilet Ninja, what's what's with that T-shirt? Oh, that was a joke that I used to do. You know, it's all part of my um, OCD and uh, germophobia, whereas I never touch anything in the toilet. No, I, flush, I flush with my foot. Not, uh, even when I go into a public bathroom, I don't just take the first reel of toilet paper. I roll it a few times to get to oh, the wheels okay. under it because I don't know whose hands have been on that toilet paper. So I take a few rolls. So I'm 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 very much into wastage. I'm sorry. I roll a few rolls, throw that, and then I use that toilet paper. So that is uh I used to sell the merch. I used to do a joke about oh my God. toilet ninja. And so I used to sell <laughs> a t-shirt. So that is this is one of my old t-shirts. Well, Gina, we are gonna be watching for um you know the next round, the next season of yes. Bob Hart's Abishola. We're looking for another book. We're looking for some more TV shows, yes. some more uh, comedy tours because oh. you are <laughs> just so talented. And I, I'm just so excited at your success. We've had a chance to sort of see you over the years and and our huge supporters here. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you, thank Mary. you for talking with us today. We have been talking with the fabulous, funny, smart Gina Yashire. Uh, look for her show this fall or early next year. We're hoping it's this fall. Bob Hart's Abishola on CBS. Uh, get her book, Cat Handed. Uh, you can go to our website, ginayashire.com. You've been listening to another episode of Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton. Until next time.